Hey, New City. Uh, my name is Nate Bush. Could be a lead pastor here. We are in week three of our Esther series. We're calling the series Godless. If you've been following along in the first two messages, uh, the reason why we're calling it Godless is kind of obvious. Uh, you have a lot of oppression of people, especially women, uh, in the opening uh, two chapters of Esther. And so if you haven't listened to those, I would encourage you to, to listen to them, but you don't need to have had those uh, in your mind in order to follow along with us. Uh, basically, the storyline is uh, there's a King Xerxes. He has a 187-day party. Uh, the kind of climax of that party, if you will, is his desire to bring out Vashti, the queen, to parade in front of his friends to show how awesome he is. And she refuses, which throws the kingdom in a kind of a upheaval. And uh, he wakes up, he sobers up after his 187-day party, realizes what he's done. The suggestion is made to collect virgins, beautiful virgins from around the Persian Empire, to have them compete in a competition of exploitation to see who could please the king the most. Uh, Esther wins that competition, and that's where we ended things uh, last week. This week, I wish I could say it gets better. I wish we could say we turned the corner, but chapter 3 is the genocide chapter. And we live in a world where the word genocide is a thing. And what we have to keep reminding ourselves as we're studying the book of Esther is that we also live in a world where prayer moves the hand that moves the world. And there is an invisible hand that is at work in this world doing things, changing things. And we believe that prayer does do that. And many miracles are done through what appears to be the ordinary consequences of life. And what happens in Esther are series of, of sort of coincidences that end up producing the salvation of the Jews in a way at the end of our story. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 reminds us that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, that His ways are not our ways. The Bible says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. Uh, God is mysterious in a lot of ways, and His work is mysterious. Uh, but I think we can draw the conclusion fairly easily in our study of Esther that God is at work, and that He is doing things. And even though times are really dark, and sometimes the darkness of humanity feels more real than the sovereignty of God, that we can have faith that God is at work. But I think it's also important for you to know that you have permission to sometimes wonder and question about these things. Uh, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 12, 1, prays something that you and I might, you know, we might be familiar with this kind of prayer to God. It's, righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all uh, who are treacherous thrive? And maybe you felt that way about the world that we live in today. You see treacherous people thriving, and you see the way of the wicked, not like it's, they're, they're prospering and their wickedness. And you're going, What's going on? I don't see the sovereign hand of God in this world. To ask it another way is, why is the world so horrifically dark? I think that's an appropriate question to bring to God, and you should. And you should address him with those kinds of questions, those deep questions of life. You see, we live in a, we live in a world that not only has darkness, and this is the honesty of the Bible, quite frankly. We live in a world that not only has darkness, it has forces of darkness. In Ephesians 6.12, we're reminded by the Apostle Paul that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against rulers and against authorities, uh, we, but we wrestle against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness. 
that our battle is not merely physical, but our battle is one that is about cosmic forces, cosmic powers uh, that are over the present darkness. It would be wrong of us to see the present darkness and to just think about it through merely physical sort of you know, seeing it through, through merely physical eyes. But we have to have spiritual eyes, eyes that are open to see that there are forces at work in this dark world. I, I don't know if this is encouraging to you or not, but I, I do think it's an important point to make as we're studying Esther. Uh, there is no Christian doctrine of a utopia brought about by political forces. As you study the Bible and as you look through the pages of the Bible, you will not find a Christian doctrine that says uh, the salvation of the world can somehow come through political forces. It just doesn't exist. What you will find when you read the Bible is John 16, 33. Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In In the world you will have tribulation, Jesus says. And so not only does the Bible not promise a utopia through electing the right official uh, into the right office. It does promise that those who stand with Jesus, we're going to have trouble. And Jesus encourages us, take heart, I've overcome the world. In our reading today, Haman, who is the villain of Esther, Haman is representative of the dark forces that are opposed to the covenant people of God. He represents that kind of dark force, that oppressive dark force that exists in the world. You read about Haman in verse 1 of chapter 3, after these things, that's the, um, what happened was, it was really uh, one of those coincidences of Esther. Mordecai overhears a plot to assassinate the king, he's able to tell Esther, who then tells uh, King Xerxes, he investigates, his life is saved, so after those things, Haman uh, the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and it, it, he, he, he was promoted by King Ahasuerus. And King Ahasuerus set him above all the officials who were with him. So he promotes Haman to basically prime minister position. But what's important to note here is that he's called Haman the Agagite. Agog was the king of the Amalekites during the days of Saul. Why is that significant? Well, he is Haman of a certain people, and that certain people have a certain history with the Jews. In 1 Samuel 15.2, uh, God says to Saul, I have noted what Am- Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. And so the Amalekites did something. Agog is king of the Amalekites during the time of Saul. God is instructing Saul here and saying, I want you to remember what they did to the Jews when they were leaving the Exodus. You see, the Amalekites brutally attacked the most vulnerable of Israel during the Exodus. They strategically attacked the most vulnerable. Uh, They adopted the worst of wartime tactics. You read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way uh, as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. And so here you have this godless and brutal attack on the people of God. What happens as they're leaving? The, those who are sick, the women, the children, the most vulnerable of society are in the back as they were leaving uh, on the exodus. And what did the Amalekites do, they attacked the most vulnerable, the women, the children, the lame, the old. This attack was godless, brutal, and it represented everything the people of God were to stand against. 
And so in Exodus 17, 16, we read that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so here we have Haman, who is a representative of the dark forces that are opposed to the covenant people of God, who do truly godless things like attacking the most vulnerable. And then you have Mordecai, and he's representative of the covenant people of God. We met Mordecai in chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was a Jew, his name was Mordecai, son of Kish, and Kish is the father of Saul, a Benjamite. A Benjaminite, there we go. Uh, that was hard to say. <laughs> and so you hear, here you have Mordecai who represents the covenant people of God. He is represent, representing here the conflict, the cosmic conflict. And I want you to know the Christian message is honest about the world we live in. It, Paul speaking again in Ephesians says that you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What the Apostle Paul is recognizing is that there is a dark prince uh, who is over the dark powers that do dark things in the world. And when we are not following Christ, we don't have the presence of the Holy Spirit, that we are living in the umbrella of the domain of that darkness. And the Christian message is honest about the Christian struggle. Like our struggle is not a struggle against flesh and blood, but against the, the powers and the principalities and the dark forces, the cosmic dark forces in the world. In, in 1 Peter 5, 8, we're told that we should be sober-minded and be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In other words, you have an enemy. An enemy that does dark stuff to God's people. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, the enemy is called a dragon. In 1 Peter 5, 8, he's a lion prowling, looking for someone to devour. In Revelation 12, 17, the enemy is a dragon. The dragon became furious because he lost to the lamb. He became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who are her offspring? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And so here you have a portrait of our enemy, the, the prince of the power of the air, uh, Satan himself, who oversees the darkness that happens in the world, and he is opposed to the people of God. And so there is no promise in the scriptures that when you become a Christian, you immediately get brought into this utopian society. That is not the promise of the Bible. The promise of the Bible that one day God is going to redeem, restore the world lost and broken by sin. He's going to make everything new. Until then, there's a struggle. And we're engaged in a struggle. And it's a righteous struggle to talk about how there's a God who's redeeming and restoring the world. And he's rescuing people from darkness. And he's calling us into his light. The chief, like the chief symptom of the darkness of the world is self-centeredness. In fact, the enemy who is prowling around, he is constantly whispering in the ears of society, care about yourself most of all. And as human self-centeredness increases, so does the darkness of the human heart. I want you to see a curious verse in verse 2. So Haman is promoted prime minister, verse 1, verse 2, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down. And paid homage to Haman. Here's the curious verse. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Uh, most commentators agree that what is uh, the bowing down to Haman here is not a special kind of bowing down. 
Uh, you would, uh, in some cultures, Asian cultures in particular, bowing is a form of respect, kind of like handshaking in American societies prior to COVID. I think handshaking's probably gone. But you, you, it, maybe it's the elbow bump you know, that is to come. But it was a customary thing that you showed respect to people who had authority over you. So what's curious here is that it's commanded. And the reason it's commanded is likely because Haman is an unsavory character and people were not inclined to want to bow to him. He is, though, so self-centered that he wanted to make sure that people did bow down to him and he probably procured the fact that there would be a law that would require people to bow to him. And self-centered people in power see their subjects as pawns and not people. And that we will see is clearly the feeling of Haman. So there's a law given, bow down to Haman, and we see in verse 2, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Now why did Mordecai not bow down and pay homage? Well, I've been kind of tipping my hat to, the, to what's happening here, is that there is a cosmic struggle happening. Haman represents the dark forces in this cosmic struggle. Uh, Mordecai represents the, the Jews and God's covenant people and this cosmic struggle. And there is a cosmic struggle that's being played out in the human drama right now. We're all in the middle of it. There are, there are forces of darkness and there are forces of light. And there's a cosmic struggle that we are in the middle of. And you see it here in verses 3 and 4. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Why aren't you bowing? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. And here we have it, the cosmic struggle between the covenant people of God and the dark forces in the world. Our struggles are never merely a matter of the physical world. I want to caution you here in reading too much into Hammond's stand. Not bowing because he's a Jew could mean lots of things. He could have made this decision out of pride and arrogance, uh, not out of commitment to God. There's no commentary given here because we're not to be looking to Mordecai in order to moralize the story. What we're to see here is a cosmic struggle that God wins. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, again we read the passage, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the struggle. That's the struggle we'll be seeing here in the pages of Esther. Another way to say it is that if you stand for God or if you stand with God, if you're part of God's covenant people, the enemy will stand against you you will have trouble in this world. See, the way of Christ is so different than the way of earthly power. The way of Christ is the way of self-sacrifice. But the way of worldly power is me-first-ism. And human pride, it, it needs human affection for its significance. Like it needs, it craves it like a drug. And it will stop at nothing to get it. And so here a pawn does not show Haman the respect he believes he deserves. And he doesn't treat Mordecai as a, as a person uh, to win over or a story to understand. He sees him as a, as a pawn to bend. 
You see, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. His fury would not be satisfied. You see, his anger could not be satisfied by merely taking it out on Mordecai. So uh, as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ashuerus. His anger gave way to genocidal thoughts. You see, the, the pride in you disdains those you cannot control. You may not be on the verge of genocide in your life right now, but like I tell you, that many of you watching online right now from around the country, many of you watching in person on a Sunday morning, you have disdain in your heart for somebody. John Tyson says in his book, Beautiful Resistance, contempt categorically devalues people and justifies its anger. One can dominate another human soul only if one despises the person one is subjugating. When contempt becomes the operating system of a society, disdain can become dangerous. All atrocities, including the Holocaust and the Rwandan genocide, the attempts of genocide here in Esther, started by lowering the value of others and justifying the right to dismiss and ultimately destroy them. See, if the pride in you cannot control others around you, especially those you disdain, it will want to eliminate them from your life. And you may, you may not have genocidal thoughts where you're wanting to kill a whole race of people, but if in an honest moment, can we just be honest here? The seed of genocide lives in all of us. When Jesus says, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I see that anyone who is angry with, a, with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother is liable to the council. Whatever says you fool will be liable to the, the hell of fire. What is he saying? He's saying anger is the seed of murder. Anger Uncontrolled fury that leads us to disdain is the seed inside of us that leads to genocide. Now, I, I can safely say I've never had the thought that I want to eliminate a single race from the planet. But I've had, I've had the thought that so-and-so was dead to me. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I have allowed my heart to grow cold, so cold to other human beings that it is if they never existed in my conscious life. Here's the deal. If anger and if disdain are dominant emotions in your life, and you go from conflict to conflict to conflict, and in that conflict to conflict, you are just eliminating people from your life. What you'll discover is all that you're left with is you. And quite frankly, the one your pride is ultimately destroying is you. Uh, in Proverbs 16, 18, the Bible says that pride goes before destruction, and a haughty or a proud spirit before, the, before a fall. To put it a slightly different way, Pride is a kind of prison. It incarcerates your thinking and inhibits the exploration of the minds of others. 
pride, if it were to let run wild in your life, turns the entire world about you. And if the entire world is about you, your mind is never free to investigate the mind, the affections, the worries, the wants, the stories of another human being. And when you receive the gospel, you receive the eternal and overwhelming affection of your Father in heaven. Like you receive this overwhelming sense of affection. Like when you become a Christian and the Father's love is poured on you, you have this sensation that I am absolutely and 100% accepted, worthy, loved. And the Father's affection is so great, it puts you at peace with him and yourself, and it frees your mind. It just frees your mind from you, and it frees your mind from worry of measuring up and how you compare to other people, how other people even treat you. And your mind is just free to love and to love even your enemies. It's overwhelming the acceptance you feel when the Father loves you. In contrast, earthbound and prideful thinking will use every tool at its disposal to exploit human beings for its own purpose. And earthbound and prideful thinking will use even religion to fulfill its selfish desires. In, in verse 7 of Esther 3, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, or more precisely, they roll dice, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Uh, Christopher Ash gives us some insight here on what's happening. He says he employs probably professional soothsayers to cast lots or roll dice to find a propitious time to carry out his plot to kill the Jews. The pur is an old Babylonian word for die. They roll the dice to decide a lucky day for genocide. Literally leveraging pagan practice and religion for the purpose of deciding how to kill a race of people. Prideful people, you see, do not see people as people, only as pawns, only as objects, only as animals. And prideful people play politics with people's lives. They literally play politics with the truth. They do what needs to be done to accomplish their agenda, and people are a means to an end. And so Haman said to King Ahasuerus, and so he comes to king ready with his plan, date in hand. There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the, the peoples in all the province of your kingdom. So he begins with a truth. There are a people in the diaspora. There are the people who are the Jews who are dispersed around the kingdom. True. Their laws are different from those of every other people. Also true. They're distinct. They do not keep the king's laws. Not true. In fact, you could say that Mordecai and Esther have been nothing but compliant in the entire process. They have, they have followed the rules. They are the most rule-abiding people that we know of in the entire narrative. The, the, the Jewish people are. They do not keep the king's laws so that it is, it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. So he starts with a sort of a, a, a truth. He goes to a half-truth. He goes to an all-right lie that's not a benefit or profit to the king. We have the benefit of knowing the story that if it weren't for Mordecai and Esther, the king would be dead right now. He continues. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed 
that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasury. So then he gives the king a bribe. He says, I'll give you 10,000 talents if you can make this happen. Notice he doesn't say who the people are. He just says a certain people. He's not even precise with this question, but he just sows a little bit of mistruth. Now, at this point in the narrative, we're to be asking the question we've been asking all through Esther, which is, who is really in power? Because King Ahasuerus has his prime minister come in and wants to do genocide, and essentially the king goes, here's my signet ring, go have fun. It's, it's wild. I mean, this very powerful king who's, who makes a point of showing his power in the first chapter of Esther is spineless and, and, and totally man, easily manipulated by the people around him. Which raises another question. <laughs> who, who's, who's really in power is one question, but what is really true is the other question. What's happening here is that Hammond, very cleverly and politically, is sowing a conspiracy theory. In fact, he gives us a little bit of the anatomy of a conspiracy theory. He starts with the truth. He goes, there's a people here in the kingdom, and they're not from here. They're, they're, they're aliens. They're, they're strangers. They're immigrants into our land. Then he goes with a half-truth. They're, they're kind of dangerous. They're lawbreakers, not law abiders. He goes out with an outright lie. Uh, they're dangerous to you and your kingdom. And then he sows fear. And then he appeals to greed. If you let me eliminate them, I will give you 10,000 talents. And I'll take care of your debt problem right now, king. You see, Christopher Ashe, in his book, Teaching Esther, says, Hammond is clearly a wealthy man, rather like some Russian uh, plutocrat, uh, plutocrats. The bribe he offers to the king is equivalent to perhaps 60% of the entire tax revenue of the empire. And I'll remind you that we come upon the king here after very, uh, 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 quite a few very expensive battles with Greece. And so you have here a, a king who is in need of cash, has given a way to get a, a, a really profound stimulus, and all he has to do is commit genocide to get it. All of this happens because Hammond uses a political tool that politicians have been using for years and years, and that's the lie. We need to recognize, though, that our adversary is the father of all lies. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says, You are of your father the devil, speaking to those who are in political power. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So here's a point I want you to hear. And I hope you'll take this to heart. We have the truth that sets people free. Like we have it. The truth that sets people free. If you're a Christian today and you know the truth about Jesus, how he lived the life that we could not live, how he died the death that we should have died, paid the penalty for sins, overcame the consequences of sin, death, and his resurrection, you have the truth that gives life. Therefore, now this is, a, in a, generally speaking, as a, as a condition of the Christian life, as a disciple of Jesus, therefore, we must be radically committed to what's true. Not just what's true in terms of the gospel, but truth itself. We have to be radically committed to the truth. 
We cannot be a people that chase after conspiracy theories. We have to be a people that is dedicated to the truth. Because we have John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. The word of God. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Let me say it another way. What you share and why you share it on your social media, it matters. It has eternal consequences. I'm going to press in. Life and death. Life and death are the power of words. The Bible says it. Death and life are the power of the tongue. And those who love it eat its fruit. I'll press in further. Stalin and Hitler's greatest power was their words. That was their greatest power. See, words can transform a human into an animal by manipulating the imaginations of people. That's what Hitler did with his propaganda. He grabbed a hold of the imaginations of a nation and convinced them in their minds that the Jews were not an equal race. Adolf Hitler says himself these words. By the skillful and sustained use of propaganda, one can make people see even heaven as hell or an extremely wretched life as paradise. I believe the world is becoming more self-centered and protectionistic, the world we're living in today. And thus it is becoming so dark that we cannot see the other's point of view. The conspiracy theories and the mistruths and the sharing of half-truths have caused people to say, I don't know what's true anymore. Soon, if the truth does not prevail, we may stop seeing the other at all. Just stop seeing them. We might develop minds that just lack the curiosity to explore the minds of others. It should be shocking to you how easy it is for Xerxes just to say, okay, and to give in to the conspiracy theory that has been woven for him. A conspiracy theory, by the way, that is going to, he loves Esther and is proud of having Esther as his queen, and he has bought into a conspiracy theory that he doesn't know yet, but has now condemned Esther to death. So the king took a signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, verse 11. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the bride that he promised. This is, most commentaries say this is kind of a nicety, but he does expect to get paid. The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as seems good to you. Let me just invite you, friend. In a world darkened with conspiracy theories fed by fear and greed, we can provide a special oasis of light fed by truth and generosity. I, I, I believe this to be true, that people are throwing their hands up in the world right now and saying, I don't know what to believe anymore. I just don't know what to believe. But you know what? They want to believe. People want to believe. 
They, they, want, they want the light to be shined, and they want generosity to be, to be felt and experienced. And no matter how dark life may seem, I want you to know, you can believe our God is a God of deliverance. We have that message. No matter how dark your life is right now, I want you to know something. The truth is that our God is a God of deliverance. Now listen to verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict was given to them. Verse 13, letters were sent by carriers. By the way, Persia had a tremendous kind of mail delivery system, fast horses and chariots. Letters were sent by carriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young, old, women, children. In one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, 11 months from this point, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Now what's interesting about that? other than the darkness of it all. Well, Karen Jobes notes that the edict of death is sent out on the 13th day of the first month, which is ironically the very eve of Passover. The decree orders the citizens of Persia to take up arms against their Jewish neighbors, killing young and old, women and children, exactly 11 months later, on the 13th day of the 12th month. The coincidence of the decree with Passover is tragically ironic, but serves to heighten the glory of the subsequent deliverance and links it to the ancient covenant of Sinai. You know what the co- what what what's happening here in a Jewish mind is remembering the Exodus story. What's happening in the Exodus story is that there is a people, the people of God, who were slaves and treated inhumanely by a king, and they were treated very, very poorly. They're crying out to God, and they are crying out in their pain, and God says to them, I see you, I hear you, and I know you. And friend, I want you to know God sees you, he hears you, and he knows your pain. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And so any Jewish person reading this on the eve of Passover are remembering how God rescued people, delivered them in the most dramatic fashion out of slavery and brought them into a life of worship. And they would be thinking here that even though it looks very dark and even though an order has been given and it seems certain the Jews are going to die in a massive genocide that was decided by the rolling of dice by a man who was angry at another man. In light of all of that and the evil of it all, They're reading the pages and they're going, God's a deliverer. He's a deliverer. And I know their mind is drifting to Exodus chapter 6, as ours should, because this is not just a Jewish story, this is a Christian story. Because we are God's covenant people. Say therefore to the people of Israel, God says to Moses, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God is a deliverer God. And he will bring us out. He will deliver us. He will redeem us. He will take us to be his own. This text raises some really important points for us because we're sitting now in chapter 3 in the tension. We're hoping and believing in the redemption, but we're sitting in the tension. 
Because we live in a world where humans created in the image of God are systematically dehumanized and disregarded. We see it in the Exodus. We see it in Esther. We see it in Hitler's Germany. We see it around the world today. We see it in America in many contexts today. And people are asking the question, which lives matter? Whose life really matters? We are supposed to be, in this text, looking long and hard at the cold heartlessness that can settle in to human beings. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. The decree was issued in Susa the citadel. This should, be, this should be utterly shocking. An order is going out right now to every province of Persia, kill every Jew, take their stuff. It's dark. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa, where the people live, was thrown into confusion. They were like, what's going on? Blown away by this edict that came out of nowhere. The city's in absolute confusion. Meanwhile, the politicians who just issued genocide are drinking, relaxing, un, un, unmoved. And in fact, in chapter 3, there's very little deliberation on such an important matter as genocide. To which Mike Cosper points us to another point in history of the world. On January 20th, 1942, a number of German officials gathered for what became known as the Wannsee Conference. They gathered in a dignified suburb of Berlin called Wannsee. Sat in a room full of plush chairs, fine wooden furniture, and agreed upon the final solution to the Jewish question, the mass extermination of the Jews of Europe. It is said that the meeting was shorter than the cocktail hour that followed. We live in a world where human beings, under the influence of dark powers and principalities, can do very cold and dark things. Yet, my friend, the radiant light of God's love, listen, the radiant light of God's love is overcoming the cold darkness of human malice. And when Jesus burst onto the pages of John, in John chapter 1, verse 5, it's said of Jesus, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus' pierced hands have pierced the darkness with his light, and he's brought peace to our hearts. We're to be reading these pages in Esther, feeling all the shock and the horror of the inhumanity, and at the same time realizing that God is in control, and that God is good, and that he keeps his covenant promises. And we are to be looking forward to God's ultimate redemption of all things. Don't you know that Jesus was a victim of injustice to end all injustice? He was. The sinless man Jesus, unjustly crucified, 
being crucified for the purpose of ending injustice in the world. Don't you know that Jesus was oppressed to end all oppression? He was whipped and beaten, spit upon, made fun of. For what purpose? To take away all of that malice and anger from the world and restore the world back to rights again. A key principle in the entire book of Esther has been this. Don't be enamored with earthly powers. Just don't be enamored. But do, do be consumed by God's unlimited grace. I mean, be overwhelmed by it. Swim in it. He's in control. He's good. Politics are important. They're not unimportant, but they're not ultimately important. And the solution to the world is Jesus and always will be. He came and he lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we should have died. He was buried in the tomb. He rose again. He conquered our sin. He conquered our death. He's given us life and he's reminded us that no matter how dark it gets, Sunday's coming. The resurrection happens and victory is his. That message is yours, it's entrusted to you. At the very last minute, as I was writing the sermon, I wrote down one action point. I was thinking about it in the car ride over to record this sermon today. A message went out, a horrific message went out, all over Persia, through the magic of this Persian mail system. And people heard the horrific news. Shock and horror went all over the kingdom. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if everyday Christians had access to a delivery mechanism that could send the good news of God's grace to the corners of the world? And we do. Social media is awful <laughs> and it's doing a lot of harm in the world and people are feeling and experiencing it. But it's also a grand opportunity. And I want to challenge you to become a digital missionary. To use whatever platform that God has given you to stand on and to proclaim that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And that no matter how dark the day is, that he's a redeemer God and he comes into our dark stories and shines his wonderful, glorious light and he rescues us. Just consider it. Maybe God will give you an opportunity on your platform to share the good news. We end our teaching time with a time of generosity, communion, and prayer. Generosity is a value for New City. We appreciate your generosity. You can give online. You can give on the app. Uh, you can give if you're in service in the boxes in the back, we would so appreciate your generosity. Communion is a time where we celebrate Christ's overcoming. You know, we break the bread, remember his body broken for us. We take the cup, remember his blood shed for us. Remember that he became the object of all that violence to end all this violence that we see in the world. It's a time to celebrate Jesus and admit our sins, but to celebrate Jesus. And we have a time of prayer. We'd love to be able to pray with you. Let us know in the chat feature if you're online uh, that you need prayer. We'd love to be able to pray for you. And I'm going to pray for you right now. Father, I know that our country's got a lot of unrest right now. I know there are a lot of people who are asking big questions about the darkness they're seeing in the world. You even trusted us with this wonderful message of hope. And I pray that you'd help us to be empowered, uh, encouraged, called 
to share that message of hope, of hope with as many people as possible. Help us to shine a light of your grace into the dark corners of this world. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. God bless.